You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Life happens, right? Things happen, and it makes it so we can't always, you know, expect things to go the way you would have wanted them to go. Uh... Kids might have to move home. Economic situations, the degree that they were trying to obtain um, wasn't a degree necessarily that they could make the money they need to make. Uh, Other issues, medical issues, health issues, psychological issues, there's a, a lot of reasons why we may need to look to go back home. And so one of the things I would uh, suggest, I think, to all of us is, A, let's all judge a lot less those situations because we don't know why our neighbor's kids are still living at home. But one of the things I know that we can do is, and and I'm noticing it with my own children, I have uh, six kids, a daughter and five boys, and the daughters, she went to school, got married, moved on, has a house, doing her thing growing in a healthy way. my All my kids are, are at it. They're out doing the things that they're supposed to do, trying to figure out life. One is away at college, um, and one just got home from an LDS mission. But what is amazing to me is, I, is the level of parenting that you still are doing with these kids, as even as you've thought you launched them. You know, I think we a lot of us think that once we just kind of shoot them out into the world— they're not going to boomerang back. But the reality is my role as a father doesn't end. I can keep teaching more and more and giving other ideas and other information. And I'm just grateful that they're willing to come back to ask for help, for advice, for insight, because it allows me to keep influencing them. And one of the things I'm realizing is, oh, boy, I wish I had maybe taught them some more things when they were younger. I wish I had set some better expectations about life and how things work when they were younger. So remember that um, if if you don't teach them younger, you're going to get a chance probably to teach them when they're older. And so maybe let's spend more time trying to empower our kids. I always just think of the the birds that like take their little cute little baby bird and just push them out of the nest. And that bird better be ready to fly because it's it's time to fly. Um, and there's a difference between, I think, abandoning our kids and just throwing them out into the world and hoping they can make it versus truly empowering them. So what if we all spend a little more time with our, our kids making sure that they have the skills to to uh, to work that they have a work ethic, so they they understand that they have to get up every day and go make something happen. To to not just let them only have dreams, but also have the skills to make a dream become a reality because they know how to make a plan, they know how to set a goal, they know how to accomplish a goal. And um, th- there's a lot of tools, there's a lot of resources. I think for all of us to be able to teach these things to our kids. There are a million books. One of the things I, I've also just noticed in my own life with my own family is a lot of us keep shooting for perfection when really a little progress is all we need. We don't need to have the highest degree of completion of everything we do when sometimes all we need is some progress on a goal. We we don't need to... Um, 
have the perfect studio setup I've been talking to my son about. What we need is just a doable, actionable setup that would make it so my son could start creating his music. And when we get too caught up in the perfection of wanting the perfect studio, it might be actually just a way to have an impediment from risking and doing what we need to do. Every single one of us have goals and dreams that uh, that that we want to accomplish. But be careful because when you think um, – when you think that it's just easy to go live on your own, it's not. It's a, it's overwhelming for some of these kids to to know how to do it, to see how to do it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And so there are benefits of like going to school or, in our case, having our son go on a mission where we know he can do it on his own. He came home after two years, and he— he had gained weight. He was healthy. He knew how to exercise. He knew how to take care of himself. He still had his teeth, which meant he brushed his teeth regularly. You know, all these things we were worried about, he could handle. Then we just take him to the next level and take him to the next level. I think each and every one of us as parents, it's it's upon us to empower our ch- our child, not just to abandon them, not just to send them on their way, but make sure that inside of each of our kids is the power to thrive, and to succeed. And um, I think however we go about doing that when they're younger will influence their abilities as they're older. And I think each and every one of us should make sure that our kids have the social skills they need, the emotional skills and management skills they need to succeed in life, that they have the intellectual abilities, that they've either learned their kid, their gifts and their talents, and they're doing something toward what they're passionate and have gifts and talents around, or that they're on the you know on their way to discover those things. I think we need to make sure they're spiritually solid and strong, that they have some connection to a higher power, and they know how to connect into that power to find peace when uh, days and times get difficult. Um, I don't think we should just hope they just get married. <laughs> And then they're out of your hair. I mean, I, you know how many times I work with people that just got married thinking that was the answer, but they didn't have any skills or tools or abilities or insight, and then they're supposed to go figure it all out with their spouse. I also don't think that we should avoid marriage either. We have way too many, I think, that are just afraid to go marry because it's different and it's hard. And I think a lot of that is because of us We parents, we're the ones that have taught them that marriage is dangerous and scary and not quite what you thought it should be. So parents, we can do better. And uh, when, when our children do need to come home, let's sit down. Let's make a plan, knowing the plan will change. But let's get real and let's be talking about it and let's be sharing your expectations, sharing your concerns, and hearing their concerns. Let's give them enough freedom, but let's also... Give them some accountability as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As we talk about bullying, we don't want to just bully Donald Trump, but man, he makes it so easy just because of, you know, the last few weeks. How many people are in the carnage of the Trumpster? So one of the things that I I really like to draw a distinction on when I work with companies and Stephen Covey taught this uh, very well, is there's a certain time that we need to compete and there's a certain time that we need to cooperate. And competition works incredibly well, but you'll notice that a lot of – and it, for a lot of people, 
some of this aggressiveness and aggression that we see in our business and our workplace might be coming from the fact that you've set up systems that are competitive instead of cooperative. So if I work in a company and I'm a salesperson and we have a list uh, you know, where we compete every week to be the number one salesperson, then what? it's great because you'll get the benefits of competition, right? So I'll work hard. I'll keep trying to, you know, increase my abilities and my skills. That's that's actually pretty smart, right? Because I want all my sales guys kind of competing against each other, we think. The downside to that competition, however, is that when I figure out the number one easiest way to get leads and close deals, and it's my competitive advantage, I'm not telling anybody about it, right? I'm not going to tell you because it's mine. And so I keep some of the great secrets that could lift my entire team up, and I keep the secret because you've fostered as the sales manager a competitive environment. So we sometimes we're afraid that if we're too cooperative, we, we you know, we'll be able to brainstorm better. We'll be able to share best practices if we're cooperating So the dilemma becomes, how do I create an environment where I balance my competition of my people and my cooperation with my people to create this synergy? Like, think about it in learning, is the best way to learn to create a competitive environment. So if we're grading on the curve and I can only give so many A's, I guess that's the best way to create learning? I doubt it. Yet we're all at school competing for grades. We're all at work competing. And there are certain times I'm not questioning that we should compete. If I need to make a team, I want my team competing against each other to make the, to make the, to decide who's going to be first string, right, on the team. So for a certain percentage of my camp with my team, I'm going to have them compete for their roles and their positions. But there comes a point where I need to then make them the team. And once I decide to make them the team, if competition every single day for your role or your position is there, then I'm going to actually impact our ability to cooperate together. I, at some point, need not individual goals per se. I need group goals, collective goals. So think about your organization. And if you're an organizational leader, even think about your family. A lot of parents try to motivate their kids by competing. I used to do it all the time. First one to bed gets a sucker, <laughs> and my kids would beat each other up to get to bed. Okay, you win the sucker. But they're crying and they're hyperventilating. <laughs> she hit me. Okay, well, we got them to bed, but they hate each other. There's a certain time to compete and a certain time to cooperate, and I'm afraid that many times the bullies unintentionally don't distinguish between the two. And, for example, you can see with in political runoffs, we could compete so hard against each other that we can't cooperate at the end of the at the end of the primaries. You could compete so hard that your candidate is useless in a general election, and that was you know the old Reagan belief that he'll never say anything negative about a fellow Republican or whatever it's not his role; he will only fight the Democrat or whatever. And there's times, if you notice, in our culture, in our uh, country, that our politicians 
are always in competition mode and they can't cooperate anymore. And yet policymaking and good, uh, you know, good democracy, healthy democracy demands a time to cooperate as well. So think about that in your life and in your world. Are you an effective manager of when to cooperate and when to compete? And a lot of times I think the bullies are people that just think competition's the number one rule. And it's just not the case. It's not the case. And whichever rule you choose, if you go with competition or cooperation, there's a consequence. There's a there's a payback. And um, you got to be careful of it, right? So think about it in your world. And don't just sit there and think everybody else is the bully. Is there any chance that people at your workplace consider you to be a bully? Just because of the jokes you make, what you say, are you a bully? Anyway, take it in. Figure it out. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And at work, you, uh, you're you stressed. You don't know what it is. Man, you, you, you feel so anxious. But you've never thought you were anxious, you know. Life was, you could handle stuff, but you feel like you're just losing it. What's going on with you? You may just, uh, you may just be suffering from this, this focus issue that Rasmus was talking about, the pressure starting to mount. So I, I put together a little list of some hidden signs that may indicate that you may have a little anxiety, a little anxiousness going on board, right? It doesn't mean... And I don't love the label of, yeah, you're just anxious. It's, um, but you're feeling something going on. So here's some examples. And by the way, you'll notice it might simply mean to, you can't, you maybe don't have anxiety, but you just can't focus. There's too much stuff going on. So we need to learn to prioritize and, and figure out what we can say no to. One sign is that you tend to procrastinate things. If you put a lot of important things off, you know, everybody puts something off in their lives, but and we delay, we procrastinate, but procrastination may give you the appearance uh, that you're working, but really what you're always doing is just thinking about what you need to do. So it, we, you know, we, we just think, I'll just delay it. I'll just keep delaying it. Um, if you keep procrastinating, it might be a sign that you're getting caught up in this too much. You're being overwhelmed by it. And it's easier to just put it out. Uh, ignore it, jump it, skip it instead of dealing with it. The fix would be instead of avoiding it or postponing it or, you know, moving and jibing, doing what you can to not have to deal with it, maybe just set a deadline and and choose to get it done. Get that one thing done. Find the one thing that you need to get done today and let's just get it done and not stop till we get that thing done. That would demand though, right, that you have a priority that you know what your one thing is. Another thing that that tends to probably induce a lot of anxiety in us is this indecision because we maybe don't know what's most important and everything in this world seems important because it came over the phone and it did beep when I when I received the message. So obviously it's important. Um the probably the problem is it's not always important just because it beeps. You know, that's just something you set on your phone. Um, an alert or some type, some type of warning. Decisions are hard for a lot of us. Um, it's uh, we have self doubt. We have a lot of overwhelm because we have so much to get done. We've made mistakes in the past, so our confidence is down. Anxious people, uh, or what I call uh, Ferraris, 
in a world full of Chevys, about 20 percent of people are, you know, more high sensitive, more highly tuned, more almost in a way high performance that they they might actually overthink everything. They overdo everything. They're overamped on it. So one of the fixes is simply to find ways to anticipate how you can, you know, maybe stay ahead, a little bit ahead of some of these issues. Uh, maybe find ways to simplify, find ways to not make everything so difficult. Another sign that you have a, a little bit of anxiety on board might be the fact that you overcomplicate everything. Everything you add so much more value to. And it's great. That's one of your gifts is to add value, but you don't need to add value to everything. Sometimes it's okay to just let it be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Maybe you don't need to perfect it by cutting off the crust. Well, the kids won't eat it. Well, then they'll learn to deal with the crust one way or another. But maybe what we could do is not make everything harder for everyone. Or as we talked about last week, always seeking perfection. Another thing we tend to do is just make up stories. We just have lots of stories about why we don't do what we do, why we aren't getting the results we need, why things aren't happening. And if you tell a lot of stories instead of getting a lot of results, odds are you might you might be a little anxious. So if you are telling stories, if you sense you're a perfectionist, if you tend to complicate and make things harder than they need to be, if you feel indecisive and you procrastinate a lot, my friend, you may have a little battle with anxiety. Doesn't mean you need to go get medicine. Doesn't mean you need to go to a doctor. What it does mean is you might want to start learning some resiliency skills learning some mindfulness, learning to be in the moment, learning to be present, learning to say no, learning to find what your yeses are. Just uh, insight from your uh, neighborhood coach. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Look up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Well, we're not sure. Unidentified flying objects or UFOs and their extraterrestrial pilots have been disproved, or have they? One presidential candidate has said they'll release whatever they find. Here to discuss why America's flip-flop belief in UFOs and the presidential candidate who may support further research is Professor Joseph Laycock. He's an assistant professor of religion, uh, religious studies at Texas State University. He teaches courses on world religions, religion in America, new religious movements, and the intersection of religion and pop culture. Dr. Laycock, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. We've, you know, we've been hearing a lot about um, you know, the Star Wars kind of uh, belief system as a religion and the force and Jedi practices. And then also more and more, I guess, kind of extreme religions like forecasting. I guess it's probably been commonplace historically, the the end of the world and extraterrestrials. What is going on when it comes to uh, UFOs today and and people believing in them more and more? Well, the, the piece that I wrote for the conversation was, was addressing an older piece that came out in 2006, and it said, basically, nobody believes in UFOs anymore, and that's because of the Internet, because on the Internet you have enough people talking that reason always wins in the end. And so <laughs> people who believe in UFOs, once they go online and they meet the, the rational, skeptical people, they can't deal with their arguments, 
and so UFOs die out. Uh, and now we know that doesn't seem to be true. Right. Um, we do polls from time to time asking how many people uh, believe in UFOs, and it's usually about uh, a quarter of the population. And lately one poll has showed that that spiked up to 45%, which hmm. is uh, significantly high. Yeah. So in religious studies, this is something we hear all the time, right? Oh, science kills, kills anything um, smacking of the supernatural or religious or, or the paranormal science always wins in the end. And what we keep finding in sociological studies of religion is that simply isn't true, right? An individual church might uh, lose some of its clout, but something else will come up and, and take its place, even if that's something like uh, saying you're a Jedi, right? right. Um, even if it's something that comes from from pop culture. But it's like a, it's a new mythology. So uh, you're kind of saying it rotates, huh? That... Um... I guess religions, this becomes a replacement for people's religions as kind of a, a mythology they can believe in. That's right. And I, I should say something. I, uh, I got some nasty emails over this article from some UFO researchers, and somebody even put on Reddit, uh, Laycock thinks if you believe in UFOs, you're dumb. Mm. Uh, I, don't, I don't say that in the article. I don't think people who believe in UFOs are dumb, and I am not qualified to assess what people are actually Seeing, right? That's a scientific question. I right. think culture, not, not natural phenomena. Um, so when I say mythology, I don't mean in terms of it's a myth, it's not true. I mean it's a story to live by. Yeah. Right? Just, just like the book of Genesis is, amongst other things, whether you believe it's a historically true story or not, is a story about the nature of human innocence and obedience and, and all these other sort of important questions. So in that sense, um, you know, the idea of UFOs are kind of a story to live by, right? What is our place? Uh, in, in the universe. And so when the, the UFOs began to be seen in um, really around 1947 was sort of the considered to be the beginning of this, this phenomenon, it was tied up with the Cold War, with people worried about nuclear weapons mm. and the end of the world. And there were UFO religions. People began saying, you know, the, the UFOs have come to help save us from ourselves. They've come to prevent nuclear war. And certain people said, I can talk to them telepathically, or they visited me in my home. And they actually began really fully organized UFO religions by the 1950s. Isn't that interesting? And you, it, it's also funny that the feedback you got about um, people who believe in UFOs are stupid. Well, that same claim of people that believe in religion, many would say are stupid. And that's, yeah. So it's, that's it, right. it parallels, that, right? It does parallel. And I, and I think that, you know, both of these emails that I got, they began. You know, um, UFOs aren't a belief, right? They're something people either are convinced by the evidence or they're not. So the real objection was, you're in religious studies, right? You have no business talking about UFOs because that's a fundamentally separate uh, phenomenon. But uh, there's no actual definition of what constitutes religion and, and, and what doesn't. So, right. I mean, it's uh, a belief I, I set. Right. Study whatever interests me. Yeah. Ex- yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Well, and exactly because who would have ever thought that. A Star Wars uh, story would have eventually become a belief system, and you know, or even a a, a mythological fo- have a mythological faith following. So, talk about it. Talk about the, the who's the presidential candidate, by the way, that want that would release the UFO information. Well, it's, it's no secret, right? Hillary Clinton went on the the Jimmy Kimmel show and said, you know, if I am elected, I'm going to find out what's going on at, at Area 51, and I'm going to. Uh, disclose, uh, and, you know, some people that uh, the Clintons have been tied to are kind of interested in 
um, lobbying for the government to reveal whatever it knows uh, about UFOs, assuming it does know anything. Um, so what's interesting to me is that uh, in the past, political candidates who have talked about UFOs, even very minor things like uh, the Phoenix Lights incident, some strange lights were seen, and a yeah. candidate said we should put together a committee and find out what those lights were. I don't think that's unreasonable. Right. Um, but, but usually in American politics, or at least in the past, if you did that, uh, your opponent might, you know, show up with tinfoil hats on their head and really take you to task, right? Really try to portray you as, as crazy. Uh, and with Clinton, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Um, so that means that our conversation about these things has, has shifted. And maybe you don't sound crazy if you talk about uh, finding out what's going on in Area 51 or, or, or things like this. So that's, that's politically significant. I think that's interesting. That That is. What, what else are you learning? Like when you see it as a as a... It's because it's a cultural phenomenon, and as you're saying, as you're explaining, since the '40s on, it, it started kind of as a fear movement: um, aliens coming to invade, Cold War kind of you know terror behind it. What and then now where we could and then you know weird. You're just weird if you think of UFOs. You're an idiot if you believe in UFOs. To today, where a presidential candidate's talking about it, what what's happening to the rest of the population? Are we is it, is it the Internet that's starting to further this mythology, or where's that coming from? I think the Internet definitely plays a factor. I don't think that the Internet leads to people uh, ceasing to believe in paranormal phenomena at all. I think you know anyone now can go on YouTube and, and look at all kinds of videos of allegedly paranormal phenomena and decide what they think is, is happening. I think it's a huge platform for disseminating um, things like UFO sightings and, and so forth. Um, so, uh, so I think that the Internet is definitely fueling sort of what's sometimes called re-enchantment, right, in the sociology of religion, a renewal uh, of, of paranormal uh, ideas. The other thing that's interesting is that, um, you know, when people claim science is killing religion, one thing that seems to be happening is individual churches are, don't have the same kind of influence um, that they did in the past. We have data showing uh, church attendance as sort of the major mainline Protestant church is, is down, and that seems to coincide with more people believing in uh, um, so-called supernatural or paranormal phenomena, partly because the churches were condemning this sort of thing. Right? Mm-hmm. The churches were saying, don't go ghost hunting, right? Don't, uh, don't read books about ESP. This is superstition. This is not what we should be doing. Um, so ironically, if science has weakened the institutional churches, it's kind of freed people to explore these things without anyone kind of looking over their shoulder. Yeah. Do Is there an inherent kind of human need to, to believe in something bigger than us? I, I think that there is, and this is a question in, um, in religious studies. Um, Mircea Eliade was sort of a founder of religious studies in the 1960s, and he coined the term homo religiosus. Right? He, he really believed that human beings have this uh, driving, driving goal to kind of impose order or meaning on, on the universe. Uh, and so science is very good at answering um, kind of why questions, but, but can't answer sort of, um, it, it can't sort of organize the world, can't tell us our, our place in the universe. So that has to come from something else. Uh, and for religious people, it can come from their religious tradition. And for people who are kind of spiritual but not religious or just sort of seekers, that can come from a wide variety of, of sources. And I think 
um, the possibility of life on other planets or UFOs can be one of those sources. It's fascinating. And as you as you think about the mythology, the ufology, I think they call it, um, does it break also into camps, you know, like other religious movements or other, you know, mythology? Does it break into different types of uf- ufologists? Absolutely. So, you know, when you had the first reports of UFOs in the 40s and 50s, the assumption, uh, including from people like the U.S. Air Force, was these are physical metal crafts and they could be from another planet, although I think the Air Force was more concerned that they could be Soviet, right? Yeah. Could be some kind of secret Soviet uh, uh, plane. And uh, after a while, um, some people in the UFO field, like um, John Keel, who was featured in the movie The Mothman Prophecies, and Jacques Vallée, said, uh, I think what people are seeing is real, but I don't think it is a, a mechanical craft that came through another, you know, from another planet. I think that these are kind of exi- more spiritual entities, right, that they kind of exist in another sort of parallel dimension and they mm. can somehow become physical and then, and then disappear. Uh, and so John Keel, who began as a UFO researcher, by the end of his life said, I'm a demonologist. Oh. Right? And I'm, I'm trying to figure out that UFOs and religion may not be two separate phenomena. after all, what we call UFOs today may have been angels or apparitions of the Virgin Mary or, or demons in, in the past. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting because that, that means it could mean something very different to study UFOs if, mm-hmm. if you're thinking of them as, as supernatural entities as opposed to mechanical craft. It's so interesting, too, because everyone's just trying to make meaning, right? They're trying to make meaning for their life and, and for these experiences that some have had. They're trying to make it fit some knowledge base that they may not have, you know, a, a nail to hang it on. That's right. In a weird way, you know, what we what we do on religion in religious studies is not so different from what the, some of these ufologists are doing. So, if you watch shows like Ancient Aliens and they are looking at these ancient cultures around the world and they're trying to show that basically everything impressive that humans have ever made has been uh, produced by alien visitors, um, but they're looking for patterns, right? They're looking across cultures and they're trying to find some kind of theory that unites everything. And in a way, that's kind of what religious studies is, right? We right. sort of assume that there's this thing out there called religion, that probably every culture has it, uh, and then we go looking for it, and we make claims about what we found, and then, and then we fight each other about it. We say, no, your theory is wrong. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's more like this. So right. in a weird way, we are kind of cousins to the ufologists trying to make sense of the world. And I, I like that. I mean, I like, too, that you can put it in the same category as, you know, in, in mythology and trying to trying to forge uh, some, I guess, pattern that we can live by. We'll, we'll take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Laycock all about uh, ufology and how it might be becoming a, a new mythology or a new, or a, uh, or a new religion, even in some ways of uh, stating that. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Townsend Show. 
Why are people starting to believe in UFOs again? That's the topic of the conversation. Dr. Joseph Laycock joins us. He is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University, where he teaches courses on world religion, new religious movements, and the intersection of religion and pop culture. Dr. Joseph Laycock also wrote an article that we've been citing and talking about in theconversation.com called uh, Why Are People Starting to Believe in UFOs Again? Dr. Laycock, welcome back to the show, and thank you for being with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Interesting subject, um, because you are uh, a religious studies professor. What you're telling us is that the kind of the the UFO phenomenon and people believing in extraterrestrials and and chasing the UFO um, stories and I guess mythology it, it is it is paralleling kind of the creation of of religion. And I looked up uh, UFO religion on Wikipedia. There are many religions that are already kind of cited as as being UFO religions. One that many may not necessarily think about as that is Scientology. That's right. Yeah, Scientology is, um, you know, a a pretty controversial um, religion and um, very secretive. And of course, because you're secretive, people can kind of say whatever they they, they want about it. But the founder was uh, a science fiction writer, right? L. Ron Hubbard wrote uh, science fiction, wrote uh, kind of space opera sort of stories long before he founded uh, the, the Church of Scientology. Uh, and so people like, uh, there's a book uh, by an author named uh, Hugh Urban in Religious Studies who have, have looked at these connections. Um, but um, supposedly at the, the higher levels of Scientology, some of these uh, uh, stories by L. Ron Hubbard are, are kind of taken uh, more literally. So when you see people online talking about uh, an alien named Lord Zenu in kind of um, Scientology literature. This is uh, supposedly from one of L. Ron Hubbard's stories that you may or may not sort of learn about in the upper echelons of the of the Scientology movement. Uh, but all throughout the 1950s, right, people were sort of trying to make sense of uh, uh, religion and UFOs. So alongside Scientology, there were groups like... Um, uh, the Aetherius Society and the Unarian Soci- Academy of Science. I mean, we're all groups that said uh, the UFOs are coming, they're going to change the world for the better, hmm. uh, and kind of rallied around these people who said that they were the ones who could could talk to our space brothers and could kind of communicate with them. So they became, in a way, sort of UFO prophets. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that some of the kind of hardcore UFO researchers uh, are very embarrassed by these groups, right? right? And say, Which well, is why you got the pushback. That's right, and and you are sort of these new agers creating a, a, a distraction. But for someone like me who studies culture, those groups are pretty interesting. Oh yeah, and and and, I, and you don't want to just say, oh, they're just crazy. But that that is, I guess, part of the problem. What I like about what you're telling us, though, is it, whether it's um, UFOs. Or just some other trend that is going on in pop culture, people can replace the the situation that's going on in their life with uh, with mythology or with religion and use it as their kind of guiding source of light. I mean, don't we see that with some really popular speakers that are kind of new age speakers that have a more of a cult following? Oh sure, yeah. Um, you know, and this is this is a really fun conversation that I have with my students about what actually constitutes uh, a, a religion and what's just sort of a cult of of celebrity. 
so in uh, my course on religion and film, we look a little bit at uh, Jediism, like mm-hmm. people who say their religion is, is Jedi. And it seems that most of these people do not literally believe that they can you know, do any of the Jedi powers from the movies, and they understand that it's, it's just a movie, uh, but they claim, you know, this is really serious. I really think that uh, Jedi ought to exist, even, even if they don't. And there's been some interesting legal cases where they've said, uh, you know, I got thrown out of a store for shopping in my Jedi robes, and that's, that's religious discrimination. So right. it's fun to talk with my students about should we, should we have a religious freedom for the Jedis or, or not. But isn't there a there was a religion somewhere in Great Britain? I think um, where they wear colanders on their heads. Oh, Pastafarians. Yeah, Pastafarians. Yeah, right, which of course began. <laughs> Pastafarians began as a protest of uh, teaching intelligent design in yeah. science class. Okay, and, and so it began as a joke, uh, but now it seems to be quite serious. Right, so um, there's and, also this element of of play with creating new religious movements that I think people are kind of a, a surprise that this can be something playful, because we think of religion as being something uh, very, very serious all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's, that's it. And so as a, as a religious scholar, what does the purpose of religion, what does it serve? What, what is the purpose of religion versus, you know, playing to get your, and trying to get attention so that your cause can be picked up versus... Uh, you know, people that just want to wear an outfit to a store. Right. Well, um, you know, religion is, is much older than the American Constitution, right? It's only because of the American Constitution that there's any value in sort of claiming um, that what you're doing is, is a religion, right? Before that, there was, there was kind of no system to be gained, uh, as, as it were. So we're talking about what is the purpose of religion. That's a much bigger, much older question. I think... Um, in, in that case, but probably what we call religion is part of something much broader, where human beings kind of to understand the world kind of make order together. You know, I think that societies form um, religions or something that functions like a religion, um, basically through the same mechanisms through which they construct languages, right? We have to be able to talk to each other, yeah. and we have to kind of be on the same page about, uh, about reality, Right. Whether yeah. that's we all agree that there's a God and we should try to obey God's law, or um, you know we have some sense of, of, of stories that, that we ought to, to live by. Um, so I, I think that we are hardwired for religion or something that closely resembles religion. Yeah, and I guess too that then I want to associate with like-minded people so that my life and world seem a little more predictable. We can we can build strength together. Um, it's powerful. And the neat thing, I think, with technology is you can further your message and your communication and share it more with people and create a community online or in other ways through technology. Well, that's right. You know, people often forget that the Protestant Reformation probably wouldn't have gotten very far if it weren't for the invention of the printing press. Right. Right. And so the, the Internet kind of does form new religions today. What's uh, the printing press did for Martin Luther. No matter how strange your ideas seem at the time, uh, you can you can reach a much bigger audience. What do we do um, as we as we wrap this up? What as a dad? What do you suggest I teach my kids when it comes to helping them sort through all of these alternative options? Some of which are just movements, and some of them are actually turning into religions, and some of them are just an exploration of science. How do I help them sort through all of these uh, 
and, and find a healthy, you know, balance? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a tough question. I don't want to give you the wrong advice. <laughs> I will I come after there. you. I know where you live, Joseph. That's, that's right. Well, one thing that I, I deal with a lot, I used to be a high school teacher, and, and teaching about religion, something I hear from parents all the time is, you can't teach my kids about this stuff or they'll convert to some other religion. Mm. Uh, and I have to say, I've never once seen that happen. Yeah. I've never once had a student who we, we do Islam 101 or Buddhism 101, and they say, that's it, I'm, I'm changing my religion. So I actually think that kind of there's no harm in knowing about um, how other people see the world, and probably the more kind of religions and cultures and historical periods uh, people, people learn about, the more they get kind of a big picture and a more balanced perspective on, uh, on what actually is, is going on here. So I think that um, uh, variety in all things can, can help to cultivate wisdom. I agree. And, and, and you can, too, share them your view and kind of let, let, the, let their minds be open to others. Um, I think there's a – kids are a lot smarter than we maybe give them credit for. And, and by the way, our examples and the peace that we bring from our, our religious beliefs uh, – you know, sell as well. So Dr. Joseph Laycock, thank you so much for being with us and for your great insight on this. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate you. Good having you. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, When we come back, we're going to have to finish discussing batarangs. You're not going to want to miss this. Terry's going to enlighten us on uh, how Superman created the batarang. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about batarangs, and then we got sidetracked on Superman cakes. Um, here's the deal. Terry, I need your, your special uh, mind Yes, um, on it, It's this. an ability. It's a skill. Yeah. We can so, characterize yeah. it no, that way seriously. if you'd like. Yeah. Dozens would say that. And so... Um, dozens? Dozens worldwide. <laughs> okay. So Batman yes. had a little boomerang thing. Mm-hmm. Called a boomerang thing. See, Batman doesn't use guns. He doesn't right. kill people. Well, now in the movies, apparently he does. But the whole like run of the comics, his parents were killed. Right. He refuses to kill. He won't kill. Which is very helpful because if you don't take out your enemies, then they go to prison and break out and you get more comic books. Right. Right. So that's kind of the idea there. So he doesn't kill. So he needed something else to be able to use as a weapon. He used a battering. There you go. Wow. Now, the Batarang is a – I heard that Superman and Batman sat down having popcorn, watching a movie. All right. And, Sounds like a YouTube video. I've seen. And Batman was talking about how he's he kind of gets beat up a bit because mm. he doesn't have a gun. Right. And Superman said, well, why don't you make a boomerang and that will stop people. And Batman said, okay. Hmm. And Superman said, let me make it for you. Where did you hear this? It was in one of the Marvel comics. It wasn't. But go ahead. This isn't how any of this happened. But go ahead. Is it true that Superman is the first one to forge out of titanium? It was tungsten, but no. Out of tungsten. It wasn't tungsten. That he he personally mined out of tungsten ore out of a mountain in China. Vibranium. Those are all comic book metals, but go ahead. 
Is it true that Superman invented it? No. And then Batman stole it? No. Not true. Okay. Well, this is getting a big story today because now all of the Comic-Con kids go buy Batarangs. Yeah, people make these. Little boomer, little stars. They're that, sharp on the ends. Yeah. They're, they're, bas- they're th- like throwing they're throw stars, stars, but in the form of a bat. And you now, buy them at Comic-Con in, in uh, San Diego or wherever they yeah, have these events. You're spending a lot of money on tungsten batarangs, and then you can't get them through TSA. TSA. And TSA says, no more. Don't bring any more batarangs. You can bring lassos of truth. <laughs> you can bring yeah. uh, spidey gloves. Yeah, web shooters. You can do that. No problem. You can bring... By the way, Robin can bring his entire belt. Yeah, because Batman no... can't bring his belt because he's nonviolent. Except he has a battering, battering with a really sharp with sharp edges. Yeah, you're telling me he's he's not violent, but the battering looks seriously violent. Oh, oh, so he'll... violent that TSA does not allow. He'll beat Batman's... you up. He'll beat you up, but he won't kill you. Okay. He, he has a line. He has a personal code. Until now. Then Matt Aff- or, uh, Ben Affleck went in and ruined it. So, here's the deal. Answer me this: We've yeah. only got a few minutes. A minute. True. Um, why does Batman have all of the cool stuff on his belt? Because he has no powers. Why does Robin only have chapstick on his belt? Because Robin is very odd. <laughs> we'll put it that way. He's a strange little guy. That seems kind of rude. Yeah, I was going to say beauty products, but. Because yeah, he seems more, more to care about like his hairdo when yeah. I read about him. But now it's different because they're onto like the fourth Robin. Yeah, and they just they're a little crazy because he came from the League of Shadows. He's kind of a ninja type thing, so it's kind of. Well, we appreciate your insight, Terry. No, you don't. And your little walk down Nerd Road. Nerd Road. So if you're going to the airport, please check your bat belt. And uh, as you get out of your Batmobile, it's called, it's called the utility belt. It's not a bat belt. If you happen to be riding the Bat Cycle, there you go, or the Batapod, mm, that was one of the cars. They kind of called it the Batpod. Make sure you leave your uh, Batarang in your Batpod. We'll take a break. One more hour coming up. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Think of bromance. I don't think of anybody more than Terry South, uh, who's been researching friendships and male friendships and bromances. Yeah, I, I Googled how to make a friend. And there's been a recent study published. Oh, really? Yeah. So what have you learned about friend making? So, now, now this is, you, you did this because your wife said, Terry, we need to get you a friend. She said that multiple times. She's yeah. also said that she needs to make more friends because yes. we both get so caught up in what yeah. we're doing. You're we into never, your life. And all I want to do is sit in my house, pull the blinds, and get through the <laughs> 200 shows recorded on my DVR. But no one wants me to do that. Yeah, so, that's, yeah. They're what are you going to do? Bugging, yeah. Jeffrey Hall, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Kansas, set out mm. to find the answer to the study, to the question of how long does it take to make a friend. Okay. 355 adults yeah. who had recently moved and were getting to know a new acquaintance were 
asked a series of questions. They described how much time they spent with that with a person, how they typically spent those hours together, and how close they felt over time. He also, Hall, the professor, also asked 112 university freshmen who had just moved to their college town similar questions, went through their experience, and here's what he found. Okay. It takes about 40 to 60 hours of time spent together in the first few weeks after meeting for people to form a casual friendship. 40 to 60 hours for casual friendship to occur. Okay. To transition from casual friend to friend, it takes about 80 to 100 hours of together time. Wow. That's a lot of friends. Yeah. And then it says for friends to become good or best friends, which I was told once that as an adult male, you never have. You can't have a best friend anymore. You have a wife. Okay. Who told you that? A guy I used to work with. That was funny. So for friends to become good or best friends, it takes about 200 or more hours spent together Hmm. to have a best friend. A bestie. Now, you would think a best friend would be someone you'd want to confide in. Yeah. So maybe the 200 hours is to build that level of trust where you feel that person is someone right. who you could talk to and they would, you know, respect yeah. your, you know, thoughts and give you ideas that you respect. Okay. That's interesting. Different stages of a person's life may require more time or less time investment. Uh, he says, would a single young adult from form friendships faster than a married middle-aged person? That's a question Hall can't answer with this study. Yeah. But probably you would think just because the married middle-aged person has other things going on than living in a dorm. Right. Well, okay, what do you what do you think about this? Because uh, it seems like I if I'm at work all day, I have a bunch of guys around me, people around me. I feel like they're my friends. Right. And it says here hours spent together strongly predicted friendship closeness, but not if that time was spent at work or in school. Places where people weren't interacting by choice. Ah. You have to make the choice to interact to form friendships. Which explains why you feel like you have this friendship at work, but when you see that person outside of work, it's weird. Well, it's totally weird. Because you're like, whoa. Do we hug or do we That's That's where where I have my bubbles, right? I have (laughs) work. I have home. When they cross- yeah, weird stuff. It's like in Ghostbusters. You don't cross the stream from the the the, the echo packs, yeah. right? From the the. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, it's going to blow up. There's explosions that cause <laughs> Never problems. Never cross your stream. Never cross the streams. The best way to spend time seemed to be just hanging out together, watching TV or playing video games. People became closer by doing things they liked and enjoyed each other's company while doing it. Yeah. Whereas work, you're you have to be here. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. But now, okay, so watch, though. But I think it's more still compartmentalized because if I go to work, I have those people I hang out with at work. Then if I go and then if I want to choose, I mean, I don't see where I would be like, hey, I'm just going to now choose to call Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And then Jimmy and I are going to just go sit at the park and talk. I don't. So so it seems like what I would call Jimmy to do is, hey, do you want to go to a game? Right. Do you want to go to on a bike ride? So it's still based on a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's not based on you. No. It's still based on what we will do together. Right. But that hobby will grow as you spend more time together than the friendship grows separate from necessarily the hobby. Yeah, but I'm only – I mean yeah, if, I know. If, if you can't go to the game, I'll, I'm still going. I'll just – I'll take somebody someone else. else. Yeah. It's not like, oh, okay, I'll just sit at home then because you can't go. I, right. 
It just seems like it's he says, different from uh, Time spent talking didn't make people particularly closer, but chatting was better when they were striving to make a connection. Hmm. Catching up with their friends, asking them how their day was going and how their day was going and joking around. Small talk, on the other hand, seemed to be the enemy of friendship. People who talked about mundane topics became less close over time. Really? Yeah, that makes sense. As far as <laughs> small talk's boring is what they're saying. Right. And it's what you do when you're stuck in a party and you can't leave. You talk about the weather. Well, and isn't small talk really interpreted individually? Like, oh, my heavens, all he talks about is cars. Yeah. That seems like small talk to me. But for two people that love cars, it's nirvana. Mm. It's heaven on earth. <laughs> so what do you think? Do you think this is uh... – I, No, I think, I think it's accurate. But I um, – again, I'm a guy that's a fairly sensitive guy. And I don't, I, I'm not, I don't, maybe it's because I, my living is talking. Mm. So what I really want in a friend is them to just shut their mouth. And listen? No. Oh. Just, let's just sit in quiet. Sit in silence. Yeah. Wow. That doesn't sound very friendly. <laughs> trying but, to, I'm trying to, we're reaching out to this uh, professor. See yeah, if he'll let's join get us that. and you can explore think, more of these I think questions. fascinating. What I want in a friend is like a mute. Hmm. Just somebody that – and so, I, don't, I don't want to talk. I just want us to sit there. And in effect, I have that by not really associating with anyone. It's yeah. just quiet. It's I know, great. but then we worry about you. No, it's fine. I'm good. Yeah. I'm happy. I, I feel as if I'm fulfilled. Yeah. If I need something more, there's a video game I can play. Yeah. Great. You can go Fortnite, people. <laughs> You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, what a fun uh, discussion about China. We really don't – we don't understand. Think about it. If you're getting most of your information from just, you know, your regular news source, you got two minutes of a story that might have something to do with China. But as I sat here with Dr. Heyer, who goes to China regularly and um, studies it, you sit there and you realize that every issue, like we brought up the South China Seas and He's like, oh, yeah, that's huge. That's there's a lot to that. There's so much going on. So every time you hear about a a stand down between the United States and and the Chinese Navy, there's it's it's a weird, you know, we, we think there's amazing, incredible tension. And some of this is just it just happens in the South China Seas. That's the only place that that tension's going on. But we don't even understand it. When we talk about Tibet, we don't understand it. And in our world and in our culture, the loudest voice gets all the attention. And we throw out these statements like our politicians might throw out about, you know, how they're playing with the currency. China's playing with the currency. Again, that is a discussion that if we actually had the discussion for the hour and a half it would take to thoroughly explore that Guess what? You'd probably understand a little bit better what's going on and understand that playing with currency can benefit both sides of the equation, right? Anyway, one of the rules then, I guess, when it comes to China and anything, and so be thinking about this as you're just trying to interact with the world, is always identify that it's more complex than any of us make it. We have to assume complexity. China is not just an enemy and it's not just a friend, And they might be, you know, stealing a lot of videos and 
pirating them. And as a country, they really are trying to stop that because that's impacting their bottom line. Notice the complexity. And they're not doing a good enough job yet. And certain people are losing millions or billions of dollars because of pirating. And the government's trying to crack down on it. So I don't know. We always think black, white, good, bad. And the reality of China is it sounds like they they like us. And they don't just like us to use us. They like us to actually – they like what we like. They like the media we like. They like watching the sports we like. And we're influencing them just as much as they're influencing us. Are you kidding me? The NBA is one of the most important things in the culture. It's just – it's interesting. So to the degree that you can fear China, you might also be able to fear America. And we've got a really powerful role there. So to me, I love bringing on guests like that. And you'll see a lot more of them and, or hear a lot more of them on the show because that's our new direction is just giving you more tools, more information. You never get a 35-minute interview with an expert in China. Where do you ever get that? And some of you are like, well, I don't want that. Let's talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, we'll get you one of those too. Hey, uh, we'll get some psychologist or something. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the things I studied in my doctoral program is uh, a theory that's called symbolic interaction theory. More than you'll ever probably want to know or remember. But the idea behind the theory is it's a social psychology theory which basically says that all symbols in life are created, right? So you're not born just knowing something. You don't you don't necessarily know what a pen is. You don't know who your family are in relation. I mean, as you would know them today, but that that symbol that I that information becomes different as you interact with it over time. And so if we interact positively on certain things, we tend to feel more positively about those things. If we interact more negatively on things, we tend to feel more negative towards those things. And our symbols over the time end up being created, which is why, you know, when you're first in love, the symbol of kissing is a very positive, incredible symbol. But if you're mad at each other and you've spent 15 years fighting, then the symbol of kissing is just a symbol of loneliness because we never do it anymore. And so um, why I bring this up is that I, we talk a lot about creating resilient kids, creating more resilient families. And I, one of the things I was thinking about recently is maybe what we need to get better at is sharing some of our stories as we interact with our family and our kids. And I think there's certain stories that induce or create more resiliency for our kids and our families. And these stories, a lot of times they, they may be told but they may not be told in a way that you're trying to foster the principle of resiliency. Uh, resiliency is that ability to to bend and and twist and kind of handle the winds of the world and um, and still be able to kind of snap back to your to your healthy state. And so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about are some of these stories that you should probably be sharing with your family. I know I need to be sharing more of with my family. These stories, by the way, will start to normalize the fact that life is hard. Life, there are some struggles, but it will also normalize the fact that it's through pain that you progress, um, that it's not the trial that's the key. It's the response to the trial. Um, It might also share with your kids that you were like them. I've just noticed with my own children that 
I end up having opportunity after opportunity to share these stories as they, you know, are coming to me and we're dealing with their life trials. Uh, but it might be important to share a few of these. One of the stories that we may we we need to make sure we're sharing with our kids is that what I call the the who am I story. When did you realize and get a really good identity or idea of who you are? Everybody, you may have had that moment when you know you were tempted or somebody asked you to do something that was against your value system, and maybe you did do it or maybe you didn't, but you really started to come to this realization that you know what i I'm better than that, you know, or the identity that you realize that you could probably you can you could be a doctor or you could you could get into this school that you want to get into, and you started to form your identity as a teacher or as a, a you know a mathematician or a scientist that's the who am i story and i think kids especially like my college kids need to know how i came to know who i was so i try to share that story another story you could share is the what matters most story like where you actually learned a very important value lesson on one of your values and you just share the story I remember working on Sunday uh, at a golf course. My entire life, uh, I was always taught you don't work on Sunday. Sunday's God's day. Give it to God. Well, I, you know, had a chance to work at a golf course, and that would give me free golfing opportunities. So I started working on Sunday, and I always felt bad about it. And then one day as I'm working on this Sunday, I'm driving a Cushman golf truck around the golf course and ended up crashing it right into a fence and ripped a fence down, basically, a big metal fence. And uh, I was thrown 20, 30 feet and messed up a little bit. And right then, as I'm walking back to get help uh, from my fellow workers, I realized, yeah, I don't value working on Sunday. I just don't value. I just don't value working on Sunday. So anyway, I ended up realizing that um, I, I need to I need to not work on Sunday anymore. And I walked right in and said, yeah, I've crashed this and I can't work on Sundays anymore. (laughs) Anyway, they looked at me like, okay, but that was a really interesting story to share with my kids. And uh, we're going to constantly be talking more about the stories we need to be sharing because they're not going to learn something that you don't share. But some of these stories are, are groundbreaking and it actually makes you more human in their eyes. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever felt like, uh, you know, the need to check your phone while talking to somebody, or have you ever made a mistake because you were on your phone? Maybe missed a turn off when you shouldn't have been driving and talking? ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, can cause many problems, among them trouble paying attention or, or staying still. The disorder is so debilitating that 6% of American children are treated with medication to reduce the symptoms. Recently, though, behavioral scientist Dr. Kushlev found that people not suffering from ADHD may unknowingly be giving themselves the symptoms of ADHD through smartphone notifications. Here to talk about his research is Kosta Kushleff. Dr. Kosta Kushleff is a professor and a research faculty member at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Kushleff. 
Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Talk to us about your research. Um, you got into the idea that maybe these phones are, are starting to create the symptoms of, of ADHD, and you, you, I guess you found some correlation there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in fact, there is quite a lot of uh, sort of research out there already uh, kind of documenting a correlational relationships. So what we really wanted to do is to uh, look at the relationship a little bit more causally. Uh, and so to do that, uh, what we did was to try to manipulate uh, how disrupted people felt by uh, smartphone notifications uh, on a daily basis. Mm. And so um, we uh, had a group of over 200 students or so participate in a two-week study. And during one week, they were instructed to keep their phones on uh, silent and to try to kind of keep them um, out of sight whenever possible so uh, that the notification disruptions are um, reduced. And during the other week, they were asked to keep their phone alerts on. And so this way, uh, we were able to compare how the same people felt, uh, how uh, uh, inattentive and hyperactive they felt during each of those weeks while keeping everything else uh, constant. Huh. What did you find out? Yeah, and so uh, we found that, uh, as we predicted, when people had their uh, alerts on uh, and were more frequently interrupted by notifications, they reported higher symptoms of inattentiveness and hyperactivity uh, than when they had their phone on silent. Now, um, of course, um, you know, these are, as you mentioned, the symptoms uh, that are associated with ADHD, and in fact, we use the same criteria uh, used to diagnose ADHD, but it's important to kind of emphasize that this does not mean that phones or smartphone notifications can cause ADHD. Uh, ADHD, of course, is a neurodevelopmental disorder with complex etiology, so it cannot be reduced to just our smartphones. Uh, but what the findings do suggest is that even for those of us not suffering from ADHD, our phones might be making us just a little bit more inattentive and hyperactive, and thus have kind of downstream consequences for uh, a lot of other outcomes, such as productivity and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I there's nothing that drives me more crazy than listening to my, uh, what are the, how old, 13-year-old uh, cell phone go off, because he has notifications <laughs> and it goes off all day long, nonstop, because he's in these group chats and every time. So I sit there and I think, with this research, it doesn't cause ADHD, but it causes symptoms of ADHD. And That's is right. it possible that we're going to end up diagnosing more kids with ADHD because they seem to carry the symptoms? Um, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely possible. And, and uh, again, with a lot of disorders, uh, you know, people have certain predispositions to certain disorders, but depending on the environment, these predispositions can be, um, you know, can actually realize or not. And so, um, you know, considering how many uh, notifications, especially uh, young people get on their phones, uh, according to some uh, estimates, uh, it runs in the hundreds uh, per day. So pretty much uh, one every minute hmm. uh, or so. So uh, it is quite uh, possible that, uh, you know, we're really kind of uh, growing up or uh, our children are growing up in an environment that is constantly demanding our attention to be switched from one thing to, to another. That's making it very difficult to, for us to focus on one thing and very easy for us to become very hyperactive. So if we... Do you sense that if we just turned the notifications off, 
mm-hmm. those symptoms would go away? Well, um, or is it just having the course, phone and you know because the, the child will still see it light up maybe or you know may, that's right yeah. So in our so in our research, uh, we uh, asked our participants two things. So one thing was to switch the phone on silent, and the second thing was to kind of try to keep it out of sight and out of reach. So uh, of course, you know, notifications can be uh, sort of alerted in many different ways. It could be sound, but it could, uh, as you mentioned, be uh, a visual uh, thing. So you just see the phone. You know, it doesn't have to uh, ring uh, if you see it pop up uh, on the table. Uh, so I think the key is to, you know, try at least during certain activities that we value and that require attention, such as, you know, talking with other people in person or studying or working, uh, to try to, you know, switch off our phone or switch it off on silent uh, and uh, put it away for, you know, uh, even if it's for half an hour or an hour or something like that, uh, you know, this could really potentially help us uh, focus. Now, mm. of course, there is the other set sort of side of this, which is that, you know, if you're used to constantly seeing your notifications and you know that you're getting notifications all the time, uh, then it's possible that putting your phone away might actually at first feel really unnatural and actually make you think of the phone uh, more. Uh, And so when we were kind of starting this research, we weren't completely sure that we'll find what we found because we thought, well, maybe people would actually, you know, drive themselves crazy trying to keep their phone on silent and it would become more uh, inattentive and hyperactive. But that's not what we found. So uh, I think there is a little hope there that we could uh, reduce these symptoms by regulating our uh, phone use and how we receive notifications. Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, this is this this is interesting because long term, we don't know really at all long-term the impact of this, do we? Um, no, we have no idea. And I mean, this was one of the first um, pieces of research where we, uh, again, tried to manipulate uh, how people get notifications to see what effect it has on you know, a population of regular people. Uh, but again, this was a two-week study, uh, and uh, you know, we found a lot of downstream consequences uh, from this inattentiveness and hyperactivity kind of consistent with past research on a variety of other important outcomes, such as, uh, again, productivity, how socially connected people felt to other people, which is interesting because phones are often used to connect us with others. Mm-hmm. But yet we found that uh, to the extent that phones made people more inattentive, they also made them feel less socially connected. Uh, people also kind of felt... Uh, a lower sense of environmental mastery, so kind of uh, things are a little bit out of control and that sort of thing. Uh, um, and so I think if we, you know, ran the study for a year or something like this, we might uh, be able to actually isolate these uh, downstream con- consequences more clearly as well. But it was only two weeks. Yeah, at this yeah. Stage. Did, did you see a difference between the, um, like a teenager and an adult? So uh, we used a convenient sample, uh, like most of psychology, uh, and so we relied on our, um, you know, students, mostly psychology students, uh, and so uh, those were, um, the, the age range was about 19 to 22, I think, so a uh, pretty narrow age range, 
Um, and so we can't really answer the question whether there is a difference between, uh, you know, teenagers and adults and that sort of thing. Uh, there's certainly quite a lot of data uh, out there from Pew Research Center and so forth that does suggest that people, uh, younger people use their phones more than adults. Uh, and so from that perspective, it's possible that the effects would be uh, stronger for uh, for younger people, uh, but we could not answer that question definitively in our research. Mm. Wow. So what you found is concentration, I guess, tends to go down, um, productivity goes down, social connectedness goes down, uh, environmental mastery, I guess, a sense that you're kind of in control of your world. These all seem to parallel, in a way, these seem to be stressors as well. So if this is going on and all of your, your productivity, your social connectedness, your you know, self-environmental mastery, is, if they're all dropping, it seems like anxiousness would be going up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've, we've run some other research, which wasn't with smartphone notifications, but with email notifications. And that was with a sample of um, professionals and older adults. Uh, and in that case, we asked people to uh, either, you know, check their email throughout the day, as they normally do, or to try to limit their uh, email checking only to three times a day, which, you know, most people managed to reduce to about five. Uh, so it wasn't even three uh, in the end. But, uh, but we found that the, uh, when people check their email less frequently throughout the day, they experienced uh, less stress. And so uh, I think uh, what you're saying goes uh, pretty well with these findings that all these notifications might be causing us to kind of feel, um, you know, scattered, anxious, feeling that things can kind of get out of control and, and ultimately uh, result in more uh, stress. Yeah. Oh, boy. What are we creating, <laughs> Costa? This is getting this is going to get crazy. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, I'd love to have you give us some ideas, some solutions. You've already given us some just by checking emails, uh, you know, less frequently. Uh, what else can we do to help our kids and really ourselves not be taken in by the by the technology to the point that we start manifesting signs of ADHD and or manifesting um, anxiety, stress, other things that will come from that inattentiveness. We'll take a break. Helping you live with the technology you've got, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, is technology starting to impact your focus, your attention? Well, according to our guest, Costa Kushlev, a professor at the uh, a research faculty member at the University of Virginia, he says yes. Uh, you can also find out more from uh, Costa at, at Happy Scholar. That's his Twitter handle, at Happy Scholar. And today he's just walking us through the latest and greatest of his research where we learned that uh, when we're on technology, there's a causal effect of being on technology, not just on the technology, but when we have notifications going off on our cell phone, it disrupts us and it, it starts to create um, the symptoms of ADHD, uh, inattentiveness, decreased productivity, decreased social connectivity, 
uh, decreased environmental mastery where you kind of feel like things are out of control around you um, and focus. And so he's teaching us today about the research and, and kind of its, 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 uh, the impact it's having on us. Dr. Kost, uh, Costa Kushleff, thank you so much again for being with us. Uh, thank you. What else, um, what else do we need to know? I mean, I'm assuming this is kind of uh, the beginning of a lot of research. I mean, I mean, I know they've been doing some already, but of the impact of these technologies, just something as simple as Apple putting on a notification, and then I, boy, Costa, I created something. Uh, um, I found out that you can also make it so your flash on your camera flashes when your phone rings. So now, all right. I'm totally jumping all over the place the minute my notifications are on. What, uh, what, what do you sense is going to happen with the future of all of this research? And do you have any, um, you know, what, what could we probably anticipate seeing more of? Right. Uh, yeah, and you're right. There is already quite a lot of uh, research going on in this area. Um, and there has been quite a lot of research for a while now for, uh, on notifications, uh, but uh, what has uh, changed since the advent of the smartphone is that now these notifications are with us absolutely everywhere. Uh, you know, before, uh, you know, maybe you, your email interrupted you while you're doing something else at work, uh, but now your phone interrupts you with work emails while you're spending time with your kids or trying to, you know, enjoy a meal and so forth. So we're disrupting all these other essential activities that are important for our happiness and uh, well-being. So I think a lot of my, uh, well, a lot of my research has been focusing on this topic with, um, uh, you know, ultimately looking at well-being and happiness and how this technology can uh, both help us achieve greater happiness, but also some of the pitfalls on the way. Because it's really important to recognize here that uh, smartphones are so popular because they are incredibly useful. Uh, and I certainly use my phone a lot. And we're talking right now because you could, you know, call me in Bulgaria uh, while right. I'm on, on vacation on my cell phone. So uh, so they're incredibly useful. Um, and so, you know, you can find uh, uh, easy directions in a neighborhood and so forth. But uh, the question is, what are some of the pitfalls? What is, what is getting lost? with these, uh, these devices, and then to start thinking about how we can or what we can do in order to reduce this cost and really harness uh, the benefits. Mm -hmm. Now, I think people are already starting to uh, realize uh, they, you know, not necessarily through research, but through their own observations that these devices are having negative effects on their attention and maybe making them more hyperactive and so forth or, or stressed. And so, you know, I've heard of people kind of trying, uh, you know, their own self-interventions where they have a one day a week where they, they get um, a cell phone detox day where they just don't switch off their phone. You know, maybe it's a Saturday or a Sunday and they just do not use it at all. Um, you know, just kind of recharge mm. uh, and, and kind of pay attention to the environment. Uh, and during the rest of the week, you know, they need their phone. So, um, you know, we've come to rely on it so much. So. Uh, you know, I think it's impractical to expect that we would just throw our phones away uh, right. and throw the, the baby with a bathwater. Um, but I think uh, what I really like to see is also um, kind of these uh, big companies that produce our phones to start thinking about ways in which, um, you know, the, 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 sm the, the smartphones can become uh, sort of psychologically smart. In other words, they can start knowing us 
better and knowing our psychological needs or our psychological goals at a, at a particular moment of time during the day. So, for example, uh, with the existing technology, you can always have, uh, you can already have uh, the phone know that, for example, at five o'clock, um, you know, you pick up your son from, um, from school. So the phone knows that from five to eight o'clock, um, no work notifications should be, uh, you know, yeah, that's uh, alerted. Uh, you know, and you can still get your notifications from, you know, let's say your wife or whatever. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, so, I mean, I think it's, it's really striking that we spend more time with our smartphones than we spend with anybody, right? Like right. They, you know, they're our best friends, uh, if you will. So, so they should really know us better. I mean, maybe, you know, the next time you get your new smartphone, um, you know, the, the phone asks you a few questions about you so that, um, you know, he can kind of learn about your daily routine and so forth. And based on that, um, to, to sort of, you know, help you regulate these notifications because it's very difficult for us to, um, you know, to sort of self-regulate, uh, you know, and, and just switch our phones on silent all the time. Right. Well, you, I mean, how great if you could, you know, uh, you can already do it where you could put your, you know, your family circle, your 10 most important people in your life could be graded or rated one way. Your professional most important people could be another way. And then, I mean, there's 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 already abilities where I can turn off my phone from getting any messages, you know, or any notifications from 10 at night to 6 in the morning. But how powerful if you're – like you're saying, your phone could detect the relationship, the time of day, and then prioritize your stuff so you're only being called, if anything, by your 10 most important people. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, this is really important to emphasize here that, you know, we we already use the sort of existing uh, functionality of the phone uh, in our research. So we ask people to switch their phone on silent. But again, I just don't think that that's – you know, you know, this was no. useful for our research, but it's not really a practicable, you know, recommendation for everybody, right? Like yep. people want to get notifications. Well, uh, and, and, and it goes, so, but it goes to your point that the companies that are making these phones would better serve uh, their users if they would, you know, take a psychological approach too, right? And and start innovating based on our deeper needs for happiness. Exactly. Yeah. And we already, you know, we, I mean, many of the things are very simple, right? It's just like uh, when we're spending time with others, with close others, um, you know, we need our attention. That's important. So, you know, um, that has been demonstrated by science, but it's also something very common sense. So uh, I think, you know, uh, we can start at a very basic level, but, you know, uh, we could uh, work from there, you know, because in a hundred years we'll have, uh, perhaps even more integrated uh, devices. Who knows where we'll carry them and so forth. So we really need to start thinking about how we can integrate these devices so that they're less disruptive to our other activities. Yeah. So we don't, you know, because if you think about it too, like the, the people that are, uh, you know, today's teenagers, for example, they've never really lived in a world with no notifications, right? So right. In, a, in a sense, now is the time for those of us who still remember that there's something else than constant notifications to kind of think about how we can balance uh, these these uh, different demands. Talk about, um, I know you've done a lot of research on the happiness factor, 
and uh, the impact technology might be having on that. And, and you gave us a little taste of it. What are some other ways that technology may be hindering our happiness? Uh, well, so uh, one of the some, some of the other research that I've done as part of my uh, dissertation research was kind of looking at, uh, for example, how people use their phones uh, to find directions. And so we actually found uh, that there were a sort of positive effects, uh, net effect on happiness. So, you know, when you, you put people under pressure, uh, tell them to find a building in 30 minutes, and they can use their phones to find the directions, you know, they actually feel happier at the end because it's easier to find it and they find it faster and so forth. You know, it's less frustrating, I guess. But at the same time, we find that they miss on these social opportunities to uh, connect with um, with other people around them. So when people couldn't rely on their phones, they had to um, they had to speak to other people and ask them, "Hey, do you know where this building mm-hmm. is?" And so you know, and when you ask people for directions, you you know. Uh, it's surprisingly how helpful people want to be. And so, you know, so it's a really nice way to kind of remind yourself, oh, people are helpful, people are nice. Um, and so, you know, so that could kind of, um, without us realizing, we might be foregoing these opportunities to kind of foster this sense of connectedness, this sense of community, sense of trust in others, uh, in our communities and so forth, because we rely so much on these very, very, uh, useful devices. That's that's it's interesting. Yeah, the loss of community simply because we're no longer needing each other. I can just ask Siri. Um, exactly. That's yeah. crazy. What about uh, what would you? What advice do you give to parents? And how how much um, you know control, leadership, guidance should we take on um, when it comes to these cell phones and our kids? Should we? And what are some? What's just some general advice you give? Um, I don't know what advice to give them, to be honest. Uh, it's very difficult because, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, trying to control, uh, you know, one kid's uh, cell phone use when, you know, all the other friends or whatever can use their phone all the time could actually, you know, backfire. So, right. um, so for me, I think it's more about, you know, thinking about at a broader level, how do we kind of create the uh, social norms uh, and uh, social awareness, I guess, uh, through perhaps programs and things like this for teenagers themselves to realize that, um, you know, being on your phone or being constantly, um, you know, communicating through a cell phone is not necessarily a good thing. I know there has been... Uh, some programs where kids have been taken on uh, to, uh, you know, again, you know, digital detox camps where, um, you know, for one week they couldn't use their phones and, you know, just a summer camp basically without phones, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's where the key is. I don't know if, um, you know, how you can actually force kids no. to use their phones once you, once you, you know, and, and I, I think, I mean, I think parents already realize the dangers. Uh, potentially, but, you know, there's these social pressures, like everybody else has a phone at 11 or 13 or whatever it is. So, you know, you kind of don't want to be the <laughs> that parent that <laughs> yeah. doesn't uh, get your kid a cell phone. So. Well, maybe what they ought to do is just read your article in the conversation.com um, because, and then go have a discussion, like talk about the fact that 
using your phone and having the notifications on, it's going to start to create symptoms of of ADHD. And maybe that's that's enough, you know, guidance for some. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. Costa Kushlev. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. That was great insight and uh, needed by all of us, folks. Pay attention. There's a cost to the phone. If anything, it's not going to cause ADHD, but apparently it will cause some of the symptoms. And the symptoms are just as bad as having ADHD many times if we're not careful. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up the second hour of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we've been talking about uh, technology and its impact on uh, on you and how it distracts you. It, it, it gives you the symptoms of ADHD. Well, yeah, but Matt, it doesn't give me ADHD. It just makes me actually act as if I have it. Well, what's the difference? It's the same thing, isn't it? If you feel like... You don't have environmental mastery. You're kind of a sense that you have a hold of the things around you in your life. It's going to stress you out. And when you get stressed out, you do crazy things. For example, here's the story of a preteen that leads cops on a high-speed chase. Police outside of Houston hit speeds up to 118 miles per hour while on a 40-mile chase. If you play Mario Kart every day and you're a preteen, a 12-year-old girl all of a sudden thinks, I'm just going to outrun these cops, getting up to 118 miles an hour. I, I believe the cops stopped her by throwing a green turtle shell at oh, her. Those are the worst. Um, Don't they, you hate it when they, they, they turtle shell you? Pills yeah. on hand. Was she um, dropping banana pills to get the cop to yeah, slide off? that's how she got 40 miles, I think. Wow. 40 miles at 118 miles an hour. And by the way, her grandmother's Chevrolet Cruze. How on earth does a cruise get up to 180 miles an hour? I thought that it could only happen with terminal velocity of falling out of an airplane. I don't know. It's crazy. Anyway, that crazy kid uh, dodged the police on the 40-mile chase. And by the way, she had her five-year-old sister in the back seat. All this was taking place when grandma was nine. Grandma was taking a nap. If you're out there, if you're a grandparent and you're going to take a nap, go ahead. Go ahead. Just sleep with the keys. Yeah. Hide your keys. Sleep with the keys. Put them in your house jacket and go to bed. Put them under your pillow. The young lady had a pretty clean drive, by the way, except for she only sideswiped two cars. Oh, Nice. No one was injured. Not bad for a first time out. Not bad for a 12-year-old. Nice. The Montgomery County attorney, uh, J.D. Lambright, said, I can't imagine this was a first-time driving experience for her. <laughs> She's done this before. By the way, guess how they got her? Technology. They called OnStar. And they just shut and off the OnStar shut down the car. Yeah. Done. You just coast. You can't outrun you, – you can outrun a cop, mm-hmm. but they always tell me you can't outrun 
The radio. The radio. That's why they call ahead. And now you really can't outrun OnStar. Satellites. <laughs> we will get you one way or another. Technology, it's impacting us and our ADHD. I see it on our team all the time. Wow. Like, I'll, I'll lose Terry for, I used to, for five minutes as he would chase down Charizard. Hmm. Well, we have a polka stop that's like right outside the building. It's within polka? reach. Did you say polka stop? No, polka. Polka. Like a pokey? Mm. Ah, I love polka stops. And you just stop. Yeah. And you just do a little jig. There's some guy with a drum and a hat and an accordion. and Yeah. Yeah. This is where you need like some brats or some pizza. Pizza? Pizza. Yeah, I used to go to Durat Skeller Pizza, okay. and they'd have polka night. That's where I picked up the accordion. All right. Those were good days. Apparently. Fond it was, memories. It was when I made Larry Pino's polka uh, orchestra. Okay. Which is a bunch of students that play accordion, and I realized I got to get out of this because he told me I was gifted in the accordion. Oh, no. Yep. And I'm like, okay. You're like, it's I'm sucking done. me in. <laughs> Shut her down. Away. Shut her down. Shut her down. All right, we'll take a break, folks. We'll come back. One more hour of the show. And by the way, only one more hour with Ben Wasden and his wonderful ravenicecream.com. Only killed two. Better than the year before. We'll be back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show.